very much. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Greetings from uh, TCM. Uh, I was here fairly recently. It's always a pleasure to come back here. I always get a warm welcome, and it's such a lovely warm church as well. I've had to shed the jacket that I'm wearing, so I hope you don't mind that. But it's a pleasure to be here again. Please keep your Bibles open at this passage as we go through it. You're going to find that helpful. What I'd like to do this morning is really spend a little bit of time talking about the context uh, that we find in this passage, and then towards the end we'll pull out some of the points later on in a little bit more detail. This part of Ephesians that we're looking at, it is a really incredibly encouraging part of Scripture, but it's also very challenging as well. And if we know one thing from these verses, it, that there is a, a fantastic great difference, a divide, if you like, between the people of God and the people of this world, between how we were and how we are to be now as Christians as well. We'll also see that the bar for the Christian is set very high in terms of how we are to be different, how we are to live in fact. There are some who think that because we're saved by grace through faith and because a true Christian can never lose his or her salvation, and these things are absolutely true, I'll be clear about that, please. Well, well, really, the job's done. But what these verses show us is that though our victory is won in Christ, those who are truly his will be markedly different from those who are not, and from what they used to be as well. This is the great divide of the human race. We have a division between those who are saved and belong to Christ in the kingdom of light on the one hand, and those who are not and who dwell in the kingdom of darkness on the other. And everybody, without exception, belongs to one of these kingdoms. Those who are truly Christ's in his kingdom will manifest, to some degree or other, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, how we speak, how we act, and especially how we are with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, just before we go any further, can I ask you to have something in the back of your minds as we look at these verses most closely? The heart of the message today is not try harder. It's not. In a nutshell, the heart of the message today is love more. Love more. Because the more we know and love Jesus, then the more we will know the beauty and the satisfaction and the joy of holy living. And the more we will naturally then want to live for him in ways that are pleasing to him, free from the pain of sin. If we love him, we will want from the heart to walk in the ways that we're encouraged to in this passage and in other parts of scripture without compromise, not out of a sense of cold duty, but with a warm heart and affection. Do you know anything about longing? Are you compelled to go on with the Lord? Can you say with Paul in Philippians 3.14, that you press on towards the goal, the prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus? Do you do that out of a genuine love for him? See, the question really isn't, do we know about him? Do we intellectually agree with solid biblical truth? The question is, do we really know him? Is he precious to us personally? If he is, we will have the strength to live as we're about to see. 
as Paul so passionately encourages to do here. If not, then you know we can go through lists like this, we can tidy up our act a little bit perhaps, but it will profit us nothing. Of fundamental importance in this and every aspect of life is this. Do we have Christ as the true cornerstone in our lives? Is he the bedrock? Is he a really our greatest love? That is the foundation we must build on. That and nothing else. But build we must. And as we build individually and together as a church, we glorify God and we serve as salt and light in a world that we know is in such dreadful darkness. We're in the world, but not of it. I'm looking at these verses that Paul makes that distinction. Again, we're all one race, the human race. So when people talk about race relations, that's wrong. We are one human race. We just have different amounts of melanin in our skin. There are many ways we do differ. In colour, sex, age, status, wealth, political views, and much else besides as well. We are one race descended from Adam and through Noah. Again, the massive overarching difference that divides all of humanity is between those in the kingdom of darkness heading for hell and those in the kingdom of light heading for heaven. And in these verses 17 to 19, Paul describes the traits of those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. Just look at some of the terms he uses there. Futile. The word literally used here means void of a useful aim or goal. Their minds are futile. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from God. So the message of the cross isn't the best possible news to them. It's a foolishness. It says they are ignorant, hard-hearted, sensual, greedy for impurity. Self-gratification and self-satisfaction is their driving force. And the more they do it, the more they you know, calloused and hardened. Have you ever noticed with sin that, you know, sometimes it, it can prick the conscience? We can be sensitive to it. But if we do it again, and again, and again, it gets pretty easy each time, doesn't it? Until there's not much thought given to it at all. And we get the intervention of God in his mercy, saving us from our sin. The result is the kind of perversion and violence that we see in our society today. When the conscience is seated, that is not bound to sin. This doesn't mean that non-believers are like this all of the time. They're not always as bad as they could be, just as we are not always as good as we could be all the time either. But there is this foundational, fundamental difference between those who belong to Christ and those who do not. And but for the mercy and grace of God, we would still be amongst those who do not. They are not our enemy. Our fight is not with them, it is with the spiritual forces behind the resultant culture, Satan and his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 10 expands on this whole idea if you want to look at it later. I saw a social media post recently on the, uh, the Answers in Genesis website. Somebody had written this warning, watch out, the culture is out to get your children. Ken Ham, the founder of that ministry, wisely wrote back that actually Satan is out to get your children and he uses the culture to do it. We're warned by Peter, are we not, that Satan prowls around like a lion looking for someone he can develop, uh, devour, on Peter 5.8. I don't know if you've ever followed the Barna surveys, they kind of plot changes in Christian attitudes and beliefs over the years. And one of the 
so, uh, one of the things that they identified recently with the self-identifying Christians is that the failure to believe in Satan is increasing. People who identify as Christians are saying they don't believe in Satan. Can I just say, if, if that's you, let me challenge you to do something. Try and live as fully as you can for Christ. And I promise you, that belief will quickly change. We have a real enemy. The culture war is at heart a spiritual war. And we're involved whether we like it or not. Peter was writing to Christians with his warning about Satan being like a pilot lion. And the world, the ungodly system of thought, dominates those around us, is the world in which we are to shine the light of truth, to share the gospel message, to live it out. When you ever look around in the world, you see the headlines like I would just think, what's wrong with everybody? How can they possibly do that? How can they possibly believe that? They do so because they are spiritually blind. And that is the kingdom we were delivered from as well. Our, still, our sin still remains in us. We battle with it. And we will continue to do so until either Christ returns or calls us home. But look at how we do change. Look at how we are to change. Look at the hallmarks of the new man or the new woman from verse 20. That is not how you came to know Christ. Not with the darkened mind and heart, the hardened heart. That wasn't the way. The mind which was dark and bound no longer is. Hearts that were hardened and impure no longer are. We're taught to put off our old corrupted selves, verse 22, and be renewed in the spirit of our minds, putting on the new self in righteousness and holiness. You see what a transformation this is. Verses 23 and 24, it is radical. The old self put off, the new self put on, and this is how we know we are born again. There's a radical change. Our eyes are opened. And we not only see the sin of our former lives and hate it, we delight in this new life. We positively hunger for his righteousness. I've known many Christians, and I was one myself for many years, who wonder about assurance. Am I really saved? You want to know you're born again? Where is the fruit? What are your desires? Are they different from what they used to be? Do you see the light? Do you long to be free from the corrupt old self that chased its only desires? Desires that promised so much, led only to disappointment and darkness. Is your attitude new? Do you think and speak and live differently to how you used to? Not asking if you're perfect, or if you walk in total victory every day. None of us is, and none of us do. In fact, 1 John 1 8 tells us clearly if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Do you desire to? Do you really want to? Because if you're living comfortably in non sin, and you're content doing that, and you're determined to carry on that path, I have to tell you honestly, it doesn't matter what you've done, or experienced, or said, or what decision you think you've made, you're not a Christian. These verses from 20 to 24 tell us about the radical change that must be evident to at least some degree in every true believer. And what we see is that it isn't just about putting up the old man, the old way of living. We must also put on the new, verse 24 again. So we don't just stop doing evil. 
We start doing good and we want to. How does it work out in practice? What does it look like specifically? Well, I'm glad you asked. We get some specifics in the later verses, don't we, from verses 25 to 32. And all the changes that Paul could have started here, it's really telling. He starts with lying and anger. Verses 25 and 26, lying and anger. I've been put away also, let each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And notice how they're associated with Satan. And give no opportunity to the devil. Lying is also, it's of course a command that we should not do so. Exodus 20 verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's in the character of Satan, the father of lies. There is no truth in him, John 8, 44. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 12, 2. Do you get the idea that God takes this very seriously? God hates lying. Why do I kind of know this point so much? Why am I emphasizing it? Because too often I fear that we attempted to play it down a little bit. We often don't have so serious a view of it. Everybody does it. It's one of the more respectable sins. I'll give you an example. If I, I ask everybody here, we're not going to do this, so please keep your hands down. But if I ask everybody here, have you ever lied? And most people would nod heads and put their hands up and be a very rare person who would claim ever to have lied. If I ask another question, so has anybody here ever struggled with lust, for example? I don't think many hands would go up. Admit to that, that's really bad. I'm not going to do that. You see the point? Sometimes we don't see how serious this sin can be. And it's not just what we say, it's the heart motivation that is the real issue. Christianity is not a normal religion with a list of do's and don'ts to follow. It is a relationship of love with God himself. The heart and the will matter as well as the actions and the words. Just like with adultery. Matthew 5, 27 to 28, if you look at a woman with lust, you are guilty of adultery. You may not have committed the physical act, but in your heart, you are guilty if you look with lust. That's why I said earlier that the bar is set very high for the Christian. We are to love, to follow, to obey, not coldly and reluctantly, not out of a sense of duty, out of a heart that is filled with love. And we have a special affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're members of one another, verse 25. That doesn't mean that we will always like what others do in church. But it does mean that our attitude, our conduct, our dealings with each other should show love. It should not come as a surprise that God hates lying. It's the very opposite of Christ, who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. The very opposite of falsehood. And look at Revelation 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see the crowd that liars are put together with there. Murderers, idolaters, the detestable. So if you love and practice lying, if it's no big deal to you, be that direct lies, half-truths, immense misbelief, flattery, slander, boasting, exaggeration, gossip, hypocrisy, false accusation, 
whatever form it takes, these scriptures should be a warning of just how serious this is. It is no small matter. It is no respectable sin. Two of the most common sins that plague us are lying and anger. We fall so easily into them. And children show us this really clearly. In this case, we don't need to teach them how to lie, do we? We don't need to teach them how to get angry and throw a tantrum when they don't get what they want. It comes naturally to them. That's what human nature is at heart. It's the default position. The hallmark that sets us apart from the world, that makes us salt and light, is our love for God and for each other. And one of the ways that we show that is speaking the truth to each other in love. If we love one another truly, <coughs> we will hear by as well, just as God does. It is utterly poisonous to the body of Christ. You want to threaten them with the church fellowship, lie and get angry. One of the best ways of trying to destroy a fellowship. And remember again, he's writing to Christians here to warn them of the danger. There's a whole life application, of course, but it's to be especially true in the church with members of one another. The previous verses in the chapter make that point as well. One body with Christ as the head, built up in love. This is especially legal in church because lying stops the church from functioning properly. You think of the body analogy again. If the nervous system starts sending wrong signals to the body, it's utter chaos. The body can't, it just can't function. We cannot maintain unity and a function of the Holy Spirit of the body of Christ on earth if lies are amongst us, if we're spreading false messages. Ananias and Sophia serve as a stark warning for how serious this issue is. And again, we're not just talking about verbal lies here, remember. It goes much deeper. If our walk does not match our talk, we are not walking in the truth. And that, that's the heart of it all. You know, if we truly do belong to Christ, not only our words, but our lives must show the truth of that. We're walking his commands, imperfectly or sure. For sure. But we will have a passion and a desire to do so. And pain many times when we get it wrong, which leads us to repentance. And just to make a final point on this one as well, just to be clear, this isn't the truth walking in the truth as we see it. It's in the truth as he states it. It's his truth. His word is truth. The Bible is our canon, our rule of faith, our ultimate authority. Not a personal experience, an emotional experience, a personal preference, any other teaching. It is his word alone. Sola Scriptura that is our ultimate source of authority. I heard a quote about a very well-known female pastor who was addressing this question once. The question was, how can you, as a woman, be a preacher and the pastor, the Bible so clearly says that you should not be in a position of spiritual authority over men. 1 Timothy 2, 12, and 1 Corinthians 14, 34, for those who want to check that later. This is the essence of her reply. I know that Paul said I shouldn't preach, referring no doubt to those references. I know that Paul said I shouldn't preach, but he's just a man. Jesus told me to preach, so I'm going to preach. That is not walking in the truth. That is walking in the flesh. Oh, this is true for me. This is what I feel. This is my experience. That's the way I'm going to go. It's a bit like standing before a judge in a normal court and saying, well, yeah, I did break the law. You know, it just wasn't true for me. It didn't do it for me. It didn't like that one. 
It's not like this end well for the one being judged. <laughs> and of course there is a truth that the world detests. The absolute truth of Christ as the Lord, as the Saviour, as the only way to God. We sang that wonderful hymn, didn't we? One Redeemer, one way, one Saviour. We serve a great and beautiful Saviour. You should never think of it another way. But proclaim that publicly, and you can expect to be cancelled, to use the modern term. Proclaim the truth about homosexuality, transgenderism, false religions, the day of judgment, hell, any of these topics, and you can expect to push back. You'll see the truth of what I'm saying there. Sadly, we all lie sometimes. Some people lie most of the time. It's what our simple nature defaults to. For self-preservation, self-advancement, whatever it is. But it must not be so amongst us as the body of Christ. Again, we have to speak the truth to each other. Not the last bit, in love. I know when we look at these things, it might be tempting for somebody to think, oh, great, I can go up to that chap or chapess over there and say, well, I really think about them. You know, if I'm being honest with you, I never did like you. <laughs> I think you're closing us out of what we think. <laughs> that's not speaking the truth in love. That's just self-gratification. We speak the truth in love. We speak to each other with the aim of glorifying God or benefiting the other person. <clears throat> so before we take it upon ourselves to go and say something that might cause upset or injury to somebody else, perhaps we just pause a little bit and ask ourselves some questions. Is it true? Or is it just gossip? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? What's my intent in saying this? Is it really to glorify God and help the other person? Or is it a, a slight kind of attack? Maybe a way to feel better about myself, score a point. We have to speak the truth to each other, even when it's difficult. But we have to do it in love. And that is especially what we must do as leaders and preachers as well. We're commanded to speak the truth in season and out of season, whether those around us are relatively open to it at the time or whether they are intensely hostile. We speak the truth in its fullness, in love. We dare not ever water it down. That is the greatest act of love we can perform to other people. And that is what we are held accountable for. In fact, we're all going to be held accountable for every word we speak, Matthew 12, 36. You know, sin always has a much deeper consequence than we ever think that it will have. It always takes us further and costs more than we imagine when we set out. I remember years ago, um, David Jeremiah, an American preacher, telling the story of an American newspaper report at the end of the 19th century. He'd gone with some colleagues to report on this local event and it was washed out, it was a waste of time. Transport back home was cancelled, so they found themselves in the local bar bemoaning their lives in general and reporting in particular. And then as the beer started flowing, one of them just had this great idea. Why don't we just make up a story? So it probably started as a bit of a joke, and then the beer flowed more, the inhibitions went down, and people throw ideas here, there, and everywhere. And then somebody came up with an absolute cracker. Why don't we say that part of the Chinese wall is going to be broken down and exported back into America? Well, this was the winner. I mean, what a cracker. So this story was actually printed. The problem was that that story reached China. And in China at the time, there was a lot of anti-Western feeling. And this was the spark for the Boxer Rebellion. 
know anything about the Boxer Rebellion, it was an intense anti-Western rebellion by the Chinese dynasty. It resulted in something like 100,000 deaths. Hundreds of missionaries were slain. The missionary effort was pushed back years and years and years. Thousands of Chinese Christians who were seen as pro-Western were cut down. And those reporters wouldn't have intended that. It was a joke. But our words, spoken or written, can have such deep consequences beyond what we can immediately see. We must be people of the truth. Just before we move on quickly to the next point, I just want to give a very brief application here for parents as well, and for those who've got other impacts in children's lives. We have to train them to value the truth. There's no way around it. We have to ingrain this into their characters from early life. They are going to have to learn to swim in a sea of lies and deception. So there have to be consequences when they lie and when they get angry. We'll come to anger in just a moment. And when they see it and they apologize and they confess and repent, we welcome them, we love them, we forgive them. And that is exactly what it does for us, isn't it? Heaven is full. The church is full of redeemed lives. I'm one of them. I'm so grateful to God for his mercy and patience. We love. You see now how serious lying is? Not just our words, but our lives. The things that we don't say when we should. This is no respectable online as sin. There is no such thing. Its fruit is pain, bitterness, division, even death. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What was the lie that was told there? Oh, eat the fruit. You won't surely die. Look what happened as a result of that. We must crave truthfulness, especially in the body of Christ. And this is so important, Paul returns again to the theme at the end of this section, verse 31, where he warns against slander. We maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by speaking the truth to each other. Well, let's look at anger, and please don't worry, by the way, we're not going to spend as long on each of these points as we go through. We're going to focus primarily on the line in anger. So, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So, as well as exposing Satan as the father of lies, John 8 also says that he was a murderer from the beginning. And what is murder? It's the working out of anger, taking another degree. Hatred and violence, that's what it leads to. And isn't it usually the case, and if you find this when you're witnessing with something, you say, hey, what's your hope of heaven? Why, well, the person. And usually that's followed by, I've never killed anyone. Like, that's the mark of being a good person. The bar's pretty low, isn't it? But again, we see that the Bible sets the bar far higher than that. We saw earlier in Matthew 5 that we were told that we looked at lust, we were guilty of adultery. And in verse 22 of that chapter, we're told that we were angry with a brother or sister, we are in danger or liable to judgment. Uncontrolled anger is utterly ruinous. We can save ourselves a lot of pain and a lot of burden by laying it aside. Think of it as being like a train with stops on the way to the final destination. The first stop might be a reaction to a minor offence. You can get off the train here, but you choose not to. You go on to the next station. The next one is a, a growing irritation for the person. Again, you can get off, but we'll keep going a little bit further and see what happens. Then we come to a station called active dislike. Well, it's getting a bit heavier now. 
Then we have the station that says open conflict. Then we have bitterness and hatred and murder. If your heart is angry and full of hate, you may not commit the physical act. You may not reach that end station. The Bible warns us that that is a murderous heart. Human nature naturally tends towards lies and deception and anger and hate. And sometimes the only thing that restrains people is the consequences. So what do we make of this verse that tells us to be angry and do not sin in verse 28? Well, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There are some things we should get angry about. Jesus got angry. He cursed the Pharisees. Or how about when he turned the tables over in the temple and chased everybody out with a whip? Paul gets angry in Galatians when the Judaizers are trying to subvert the gospel. It is a common mistake to think of Jesus and Christians, and many in particular, as being limps. Limp, ineffective, without passion. That's not what we read in the Bible. There is a righteous anger, an anger that abhors ungodliness, injustice, immorality. I hope we do get angry sometimes. Angry at the way the media treats the Lord. Angry at the way his name is used as a cuss word. Angry at the fact that last year alone, according to the United Nations, there were 70 million abortions across the world. 70 million that didn't see the light of day even once. This is a cruel, broken, evil world. We should get angry at things sometimes. There's a righteous anger. directed to people and not to people. We must always remember that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And you're going to get into that more when you get to Ephesians chapter 6, so I don't want to steal another preacher's thunder, but this is the true nature of the battle that we are in. We hate evil. We see it for the offence to God that it is, and the damage it causes to people's lives and souls. But we still have to be careful. Paul tells us not to let the sun go down in our anger and give no opportunity to the devil, verses 26 and 27. It can be easy to look for vengeance. And we're warned about that, aren't we? As we heard so eloquently earlier. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's in good hands. Even righteous anger can lead to sin if it's held on to if we allow it to become an all-consuming driving force or focus. I don't really think that's the biggest problem for most of us. I think most of us are more tempted by the unrighteous idea. And that's a matter that can and grow and spoil very quickly. Have you ever met somebody who's fundamentally angry? You know the kind of character that this is. They're always ready to explode. They can be really nice and polite one minute. But the next, they just they just go up on one. And they can flip over the smallest thing. You have to watch every word when you're with them. It's like walking on eggshells. They're stressful, they're hard work to be with. And there's often a trail of destruction and broken relationships behind them. Oh, and they're never wrong. Never wrong at all. You get caught up in traffic or, <coughs> or shed abuse. And even if they find out, oh, actually, that driver did have right of way, shouldn't have been going so fast or so slow, or the track flight sequence is wrong, whatever, it's never their fault. 
They make decisions in that state, and the outcomes are rarely favourable. So if you are prone to anger, I think you need to confess that, and repent of it, and deal with it. Keep a short account. Get off at the first station. That's the least painful way of doing it. You know, this is what God's done for me, isn't it? He's forgiven me, and he's done it for you as well. You say, you know, oh, I don't, you don't know what they did to me. I don't. But I do know the consequences behind that anger and hatred. Whatever we have to forgive is as nothing compared to the mercy that we need from God for our offences. This is the whole meaning of the parable of the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18. Remember how the master forgave him that enormous debt. But he couldn't bring himself to write up that small debt against the fellow servant. We look at the words Jesus used to describe that man. Wicked servant. He's delivered to the jailers. And Jesus says this is what the Father will do with anyone who does not forgive his brother. And get this at the end of verse 34 in that chapter. Anyone who does not forgive his brother from the heart. This is really difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. We keep coming back to that point. We have it again. This is no superficial false declaration of forgiveness. It has to be genuine. It has to be heartfelt. We have to mean it. I know people say, oh, I'll forgive but I won't forget. What do they really mean? I can't think of you at all. I'm going to remember this. <coughs> I wonder how many of us are experts at mentally slaying our opponents. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Something crosses you and then in your imagination replay the scene, this time you win. You absolutely slaughter them. And there are lots of people in your imagination to see you do it as well. Maybe it's just me, but I really don't think so. <laughs> It won't do. We're not to be like that. And I think we know that really. Isn't it hard to stop? Isn't the flesh powerful? That unredeemed part of our nature that remains within us. It's still a danger. So like I said at the start of this message, that main point, today isn't about just try harder. Today is about love more. Love more. From the heart. Please, God, enjoy the blessings of deep fellowship with him and with each other. Then we'll be kind to one another. Then we'll tell the truth in love. Then we'll forgive one another from the heart, verse 32. It doesn't mean we should blindly trust people who hurt us or anything like that. We'd be wise in our dealings with them in the future. But we mustn't hold on to anger. Someone once said that holding on to anger and unforgiveness is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. It doesn't work. Releasing it frees us. It removes that terrible burden from us. And it shows we are Christ's. This is a supernatural act. The nature is too strong for us in ourselves. We need God's grace. And again, remember, he's writing here to the church. We will not always agree in a church. Sometimes we can even strongly agree. We must resist the temptation to be bitter and angry with each other. Now, when you find yourself slipping into that, can I just quickly give you some practical steps that will help? First one I want to say is this. Pray for the other person. Pray for them, but pray honestly. Don't make it up. Oh, they're most wonderful people out there. They're not. <coughs> God knows that. Don't lie in regret. Lord, I 
is crazy that person. <coughs> what they did really hurt me. I don't like it. It's hard. But I want to pray for that person. Just a little blessing. That might be all you can bring yourself to say the first time. But that's honest. And you know what happens all the time? The forgiveness can come. It is really hard to keep hating somebody if you pray for them. Secondly, love the other person. Do something good for them. Be ready to respond positively if they respond to you. And even if they don't, you've removed the burden from your own soul. Speak the truth in love. If it is a major issue that needs to be addressed, do it. Don't let it fester. Don't cover it up. Don't pretend it never happened. Deal with it. Deal with it in love. Remember what you need God to forgive you for as well. It keeps everything in perspective. And remember what you need others to forgive you for as well. Have you ever given others cause to be justifiably angry with you? I know I haven't. I need others to forgive. And I don't know what you've been through, but that very moving testimony we heard earlier, I'm not going to forgive anybody, anything that Christ that. And to hear such a powerful testimony, it's very humbling, isn't it? <coughs> Whatever has been done to you, forgive. It will soon be over. Our reward will not be delayed. And as that day approaches, the only thing we're going to regret is stuff that we haven't done. When we didn't love, when we didn't forgive, when we didn't choose the way of Christ, when we chose to satisfy our selfish desires. But that's for me as much as anybody here. Human anger is a terrible master. It poisons the soul and it carries such a high price. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. As we come to a close, in verses 28 to 29, Paul gives two other hallmarks of those in Christ, and we'll look at them very, very briefly. Do not steal, but work so that you can have something to share. Of course, the Eighth Commandment, do not steal, and as with the other exhortations, there's a debt here beyond the obvious. Of course, it includes physical theft of money and goods and things like that, but it goes further. Maybe it could lean a tax return, an expensive allowance, making an exaggerated insurance claim. Maybe it's stealing time from our employers, not working when we're supposed to be. Any ill-gotten gain by force or fraud. And again, do you see the pattern? It's not just don't do that, but positively do something as well. Don't be lazy, work. Don't steal and, and share. Be generous. Give to those in need from the heart. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And verse 29, let no corrupt and talk come out of your mouths. All the is good for building up the occasion, helping me get grace to those of you. You see again the beauty of this. This is not just a religion with rules. A don't do this, don't do that. This is overflowing with positivity. People Christ's were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So we don't just do things. We want to do them. Imperfectly, for sure. Inconsistently, for sure. We're still on the path. But we must have that desire. And this is what it looks like. That's why Paul's giving us these verses. You know, we can actually grieve God. Verse 30 tells us that. But we are about that. But we can actually grieve God. What a terrible thing. And he's just explained to us how we do that as well. He summarizes the whole section with a call to put certain things off and to do others as well. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. 
as God in Christ forgave you. You know, if we do that increasingly in our families, in our churches, what impact will that have on those around us who don't know Christ? It will be alien to them. It will get their attention. They will notice. The great divide between those in the kingdom of light and those in the kingdom of darkness is an absolute reality. We're not against them. We're not trying to keep them out. We want them to come in. We want them to come in the only way it's possible to enter the kingdom of light through Jesus Christ himself and through him alone. Preaching the word, living as Paul describes here, is how the people in this world will know and see the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to. We have a wonderfully glorious high calling to put off the old and put on the new. You know, when we grasp that God is for us, that he loves us, that he sees everything, he knows everything, he knows how often we've fallen short of these verses, but he still loves us. Isn't that wonderfully liberating? How can we possibly try to earn salvation? How can we possibly think we can do this in our own strength? We cannot. We are promised, as we pull, we press on to the goal, that we are never alone. Whatever happens to us, he will give us the grace to live as he has commanded. Augustine, in one of his prayers, said, God, command what you will, but give the grace for what you command. That's a wonderfully powerful prayer, I think. And I think that's a good place to stop.